Support for An Honest Account comes from Moneybox, the award-winning app helping people save and invest for their future. Moneybox allows you to invest with your spare change, from your morning coffee to your bus fare, rounded up to the nearest pound. Moneybox offers a range of savings and investment accounts and makes it super easy to use. All you do is sign up in minutes and get started with just one pound. Join over 200,000 people saving and investing for their future with Moneybox. You can download the app today or head to moneyboxapp.com for more details. Please remember that with all investing, your capital is at risk. And thank you to Moneybox. account a podcast about how money affects our lives our work health relationships and more i'm rachel revis and today i'm in conversation with jasmine anderson a reporter at the i newspaper following her moving and very honest piece about growing up working class dealing with debt at university and entering the middle class world of journalism saying I love that piece you wrote um, about being working class and growing up and with money issues and how you manage debt and it was just something we were just discussing about how there doesn't seem to be unless I'm missing it (laughs) stuff out there that's similar that's so honest do you would you agree with that yeah I think it's that really weird thing where I've always been told that I'm a bit too honest for my own good (laughs) perfect for this podcast (laughs) And I, I, I feel like women in particular are drawn to this confessional mode of journalism. And it's really hard uh, negotiating that barrier between what I'm giving and wearing my heart on my sleeve and actually looking after myself properly. So I felt like when I first started out, I did a lot of those confessional pieces where I look back now and I'm like, I actually wasn't happy doing that. And I felt kind of coerced into it or I felt like, that was the way to be published initially as a woman before you got taken seriously. Um, so I've really wanted to come to my next piece on my own terms. And it was when I met Heather Saul, who is the common editor on inews.co.uk, that we got talking and I realised she was working class as well. And we started bandying some ideas around and uh, we were both thinking, you know, We're in that realm now where we're vaguely financially secure. You know, we've got full-time jobs. We've maybe got more affluent partners, that sort of thing. But there's still always a little bit of a fear of what's going to happen. And I mean, for me, I'm a chronically anxious person. I have an anxiety disorder. And, you know, I've experienced anxiety as long as I can remember. And one of the biggest anxieties anyone can have is, is money. And, uh, you know, as soon as that became a little bit of an issue or more of a pressing issue on my mind when I was left to be in charge of my own finances, um, it really affected me. And I think when something like that has made such an imprint on you, uh, it's really hard to walk away and feel like you've put it behind you. And I mean, for me, I did have a staff job for six months before this one where I've been working for a year, but, you know, that's really not a long time so you were as an freelance adult. I was freelance, okay. yeah. yeah. I was freelance for two years. 
Um, but that's, yeah, not really a long time to have, like, big financial security, especially no. when I'm now 27, you know? I, I feel like a lot of people get it earlier. Oh, I was. I thought you might be older because you said in your piece you were excited to hit 30. I was like, hey, join the club. <laughs> You're all 27. Oh, I got loads of time. Um, but, yeah, you said in the piece that you were excited to hit 30 because then you knew you'd be completely debt-free apart from student loan yeah so is that you looking forward and re- like doing those calculations and saying that'll be the milestone yeah mm-hmm. and it's weird those chronic calculations have kind of come around since I've had full-time employment because it feels like it's in touching distance and I think just that shift in my life now where I, I do have a partner and you know you're starting to vaguely ruminate about the future and you're like oh, I don't really know what I can actually offer up, especially if I end up staying in London, Jesus Christ. But, you know, that's affecting everyone. Um, But yeah, with that, I I just looked at what I had. And, uh, you know, I I don't really count my student loan. I don't think anyone does, but... Did you have 9K worth of debt when you went junior three? I had three. three. I was the penultimate year of 3K. Mm -hmm. Do you think it would have changed your decision to go to... You went to Leeds Uni, right? Yeah, I went to Leeds. Um... Do you think you would have it would have changed your decision had it been the next year with nine a year, nine debt? Do you know what? I think I approached uni quite naively. Um, my parents really wanted me and my sister to go because they'd never had the opportunity. Um, my mum left school without any qualifications. And because of that, they were so determined that we would have those chances that they never did. And it felt like, uh, you know, I wanted to go. Uh, but it always felt like a natural step to me, which I don't think it necessarily does for most working class people. So, yeah, I definitely would have gone, but I think I would have realised the fallout, perhaps, mainly because the maintenance grant has been converted into a maintenance loan now. And I think that's the way working class people are the hardest hit. You know, that grant was a non-repayable sum that really helped people out. And now that's gone into a loan that's compounding someone's debt, I think looking at that figure after, I would have gone, God, what have I done? Nobody thinks about it much, unless you have to, right, beforehand, because it's just a number, and then you've got all these promises, like, well, you don't need to pay it off until you're earning so much. But it doesn't mean that it won't trigger anxiety or make you think about, well, I could just start working now and not deal with the debt. Absolutely. If you don't have someone pushing you, it isn't a natural occurrence to go to university when you work in class. It's to get food on the table and get some money in and get a little bit of independence. You know, your goals shift differently. You know, people do tend to have children earlier. They tend to settle down a bit earlier in every aspect of their life. And, you know, they're they're tenable goals. They're goals that understandably a lot of people want. Um, And I don't think that personal fulfillment is really put um, to the front of you in the way that it is for other people, you just don't have that luxury, mm, you know? You yeah. have to consider the reality of things. And your sister went to uni as well? She did, is that yeah. right? So yeah. you're both first in your family? Both first in our yeah. family, yeah. So what's the reaction been? Because you obviously, as you say, the piece was very honest. Mm. And you had a big reaction, I'm sure from strangers as well as your friends and family. So talk to me a little bit about that. Well, yeah, it's it's really weird because, you know, I have written a couple of pieces in my time that veer towards the more confessional side of things. But this is the one that I felt um, most exposed by, I think. It's not something that I ever talked about being in debt. 
you know, like I, I would make general remarks about my overdraft to whoever I was going out with at the time, say, but no one really knew what sort of trouble I'd gotten myself into. And it wasn't even necessarily about saving face. I just didn't want to acknowledge it myself. And if I started talking about it, I felt like it would feel like an issue. Um, so I didn't tell my parents I was writing the piece, didn't tell my sister, uh, didn't tell anyone really apart from Heather. And when it came out, I was really overwhelmed by the response. And, you know, it's, it's that really delicate balancing act of making sure that I got it right. And I paid tribute to my parents who have given me absolutely tons to make sure that I could do the job that I wanted to do, you know, move here. You know, that does require a lot of emotional support, which I think is worth so much more than money anyway. But it was, you know, waiting to see if they thought I'd paid them credit or they felt upset. You know, I, I know that they've been frustrated about the fact that, you know, they couldn't pay my rent when I was at university. They you know, don't have a deposit waiting for me for a house, but, you know, they help in other ways. And uh, it was really nice to just get a message off my parents. Uh, I think it was just over WhatsApp and a family friend had stumbled upon it and shared it on Facebook. And they, they said, you know, we both burst into tears. Mm. And I thought, oh God, in the right way or the wrong way. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, my sister lives in San Francisco now, so it took a little bit longer for her to get to it. And I was on a night out. It was about 4 a.m., you know, too many Jägermeisters. Mm -hmm. And uh, I got a call off her and she was like, you did so well. I'm really oh, proud. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, as long as they're happy with it, you know, especially my parents who are very private and I think quite confused about the decision why I do the job that I do <laughs> uh, for a multitude of reasons, you know. If, Does your sister work in the media? No, she doesn't. She right. works in fashion. Okay. So, yeah. it's I Which think one it's, are they more confused by? Fashion or journalism? <laughs> I think because my sister draws really beautiful uh, cartoons and other right. creative stuff that is, you know, a bit nicer to show right. the family. It might be a bit of an easier sell, but, yeah. you know, they're supportive of both of us. Really. Yeah, that's great. Um, and you mentioned in the piece, um, which is something I really related to, that feeling of... Um, you didn't say it like this, but a fish out of water, like, you know, the Tav parties. Oh, my God. I think back to my university days and like, how do we... I know we've come a long way in the past 10 mm. years, but how do we do that um, and think it was okay? And I remember being surrounded by people, you know, coming from Scotland and, you know, the first boy I ever kissed at university was, like, president of the shooting site or something. It was a whole other world. <laughs> a whole other world. Yeah. Um, and I admittedly, I'd say, I, you know, came from fairly middle class background, but still for me coming from Scotland and seeing that. So that's what I really related to. And I'm just wondering if you can tell me a bit more about where did, where is it you grew up exactly? I grew up in Hull. Hull, yeah. So going yeah. from Hull to Leeds and being surrounded by that different world, sure. essentially. What was that like? And how did you, how, how, and tell me also about how you got into debt and how that happened. Okay. So, I mean, Leeds is technically only an hour's train ride away from Hull, but it is a different world. I mean, Hull has really gone up in the cultural sticks now and it's been recognised in an entirely different way to, you know, what it was when I was a kid, but it's, it's undoubtedly rough around the edges. But, you know, I, I love it all the same. It's where I came from. But it's quite an insular community. Um, more outward looking now, perhaps. Or maybe it's the fact that I was quite insular. You know, that was my point of reference. You know, working class community. Quite a few middle class friends, to be fair. But 
went to a state comp, you know, uh, our weekends would be spent driving to the Mackey's drive through and staying there for as long as we possibly could. Mm-hmm. And that was about as exciting as it got. Uh, so when I went to uni, the entire mantra was to buckle down and study. That's what I was there for. Um, and I think it was probably a coping mechanism because... I had a sense of what was coming and maybe the fact that there would be so many different people, but I don't think I could estimate how different they were. Pashminas, etc. Oh my God, yeah. Has that died out yet? Or is that still a thing? <laughs> I think, I think it's died out. Okay. I'm not even sure. I mean, it's, it's the Bindi's culture war at the moment where people seem to not understand in uh, white upper class communities how offensive that is. But anyway. Oh Lord. Um, it was my first first week of uni, I think, in Freshers, when some guy came up to me and asked me where I was from, and I said, Hull, you know, inconsequentially. And he turned around and he went, oh, yeah, isn't that the shittest town in the UK? And I was like, you know, if that's your chat-up line, what an absolute mess. But first of all, it was the first time I'd thought that anyone outside of Hull thought about Hull or had an opinion on where I came from. And I just said to him, well, where are you from? And he was like, near London. And I went, well, well, where? And he said, Hertfordshire. And I was like, this, this is the kind of uh, melting pot that you end up in. Everyone's claiming to be near this big, you know, urban capital when actually everyone else is as insecure about their identity as you are. But, you know, it made me really, really angry. And it kind of continued that way where there was just this chronic lack of awareness And I just understood that people had never even met people like me before, never mind anyone else from another cultural background, someone with a disability even, you know, like basic elements of being a human. Were you surprised by that, given that it's so close to your hometown? Because where I went is only an hour and a half from where I grew up. Sure. Yeah, everyone else had come up from London or from the South. So it was, I thought I'd been making that big leap. Actually, they'd, they'd... travel even further does this make sense yeah totally I mean Leeds was technically the closest university I applied to but I think it couldn't have been further away in experience there were so many posh people oh my god like you know when you 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 talk back about it there's just so many stereotypes it seems like I've lifted them out of book like there was this one guy in my seminar who was talking about getting 18 pound shots of Sambuca in uh, Soho in some bar in Soho and I turned around to him and I went, Jesus Christ, that would get you around in Hull. And he was like, oh, I know it. <laughs> oh, and no. like, after that, it got like quite vicious. Like he found out that I was writing for Leeds Student, my university newspaper, would write in letters about articles I wrote, like would refuse to speak to me in seminars, but wear really like abrasive sexist t-shirts because he knew I was a really proud feminist. And then turned around to my friends at the end of our final seminar and said, all I know is I've really fucked off that northern class feminist bitch. And I was like, jeez. I was like, you have a problem with me. No, I have a problem with you. I have a problem with people like you who don't recognise where you come from and have no idea how the rest of the world works and operates. You know, I'm angry. And I don't get to speak that much about how angry I am because, you know... You're in this position where you want to represent people fairly. You're a communicator as a journalist. But if you ask me personally about this class divide, like, I think it's disgusting. Mm. And it really, really fucks me off. I wonder if anything has improved since we went to uni, so mm. what, at least six years ago? 
so on that note, I went to this talk recently called Intersectionality of Feminist Econ- Economics. I can never pronounce that word, economics. Um, and Professor Tracy Warren from the University of Nottingham, um, I think she's from Newcastle, and she, her specialty is, is class, academia. Mm. And what I thought was interesting, she said that she thinks that the whole talking about class is creeping back into the mainstream conversation. Mm. So for a long time, politicians, et cetera, would say you know, deprived or low income or the poor or whatever, but now that class is coming back in, do you, does that resonate with you at all? And do you think that would make any difference just to be more transparent mm. about where we're all from, etc.? I think transparency is key in this, but are we going to hear the right voices? Not necessarily. Mm. I mean, I'm really glad I'm in a position now where I can be like, hey, yeah, I'm one of a small amount of working class journalists. This is what I think. And, you know, this is who I want to talk about. But... Those people who are the hardest hit in our class system, you know, by austerity, they're not going to have the voice to do that. They're the hardest to reach people, you know, their basic survival has been decimated, you know. How are we going to get that conversation to involve people that really matters? I feel like we're stuck in this revolving door where we're really trying with intersectionality and we're really trying to branch out. But, you know, we find a couple of good speakers, a couple of good representatives from that group, and we think, oh, we've done it now. And it's so much more complicated than that. The curse of the panel discussion. The curse of the panel discussion, exactly. You know, and in a time-constrained environment like we're in, I can understand why people do opt for that and, you know... We've all been a bit sloppy in our choices, I think, at points. But, you know, I I worry. I do worry. And I think, you know, the class divide may not seem as apparent, perhaps, at university now. Because people who are working class may be going, but of a certain stratification of working class communities. And I think that's even more complex to delve into, that there's so many different strands of those working class identities, you know, I'm all right, like, my parents had an idea and, like, could guide me in a certain way. And, you know, for some people, they have different aims that they've, you know, received from their family or lent themselves brilliant. But some people just don't have that choice right now. Yeah. So before we move on to the journalism world, can you just tell me a little bit more about um, your experiences of uni and how that was impacted by money? Sure, of course. So, yeah... I actually used my overdraft before my first day of uni um, because I needed to get some stuff from my halls. I wanted to make sure that I was properly kitted out. And I think that one quite common practice among my community, definitely in Hull, is to fake it till you make it. You know, you don't want to look out of place. So you wear the appropriate jewellery, wear the appropriate brands, you know, even if you don't realise you're consciously doing it. And I never really wanted to give myself off as someone who didn't have that much money. So I was like, well, you know what, I'll pay this back at some point, but it's all right now. And, you know, I just chipped in 20 quid or whatever. But when it came to me moving into halls, I noticed that even with nailing down a 20-hour-a-week part-time job, which ekes into things in a different way, and I'll move on to that, you know, you can't keep up. You know, these are people with entirely different relative life experiences where you want to go on holiday, where you want to eat out, what is considered an easy amount for a night out, you know. And when you're conscious about sticking out like a sore thumb in an environment like that, you do end up drinking more. You know, you do end up taking things to the nth degree because sometimes maybe you're covering up for something. And it's strange to me because I would... 
I was and I still am so proud of being working class, but I hate the idea of people thinking that I'm financially vulnerable in some way, you know, even after writing that piece, I don't like it. And it's hard to know that people who were sat around with me are aware of that now. Um, but, you know, over four years, because I did a year abroad in Madrid, which was fully funded, I started accumulating this debt. And it, it got to the point in final year where I was £3,000 deep at this point. And uh, my best friend turned around to me and said, you know what, I, I think it's so interesting that you do so well. And I, I was like, sorry, what do you mean? And she was like, well, you do so well. You seem to be at everything, even though I know that you're the one with the least amount of money. And I didn't really know how to take that. You know, I think it was the first point I realised that I was maybe overcompensating and uh, trying to fit in in a way that didn't matter, wasn't natural. And you know, the people that I hung around with and still hang around with now, they don't care. Like, of course they don't care, but I care because societally, like, for how long we've been taught that I'm of lesser value because I have less money to spend. Mm. What You said you work 20 hours a week. Mm-hmm. What did you do? So I was working in Debenhams. Nice. <laughs> there was a really cheeky new year, actually, I think in first year where I was working for my boyfriend at the time's brother's chocolate fountain business in Ooh. Manchester <laughs> till 6am working with all these uh, rugby boys. It was an absolute nightmare. Doesn't, yeah, it's not, yeah. probably not as fun as it sounds. Yeah. <laughs> and then I'd go, I went in at 8am uh, the next day for a shift at Debenhams for the sale. And, you know, I'm not making out I'm the only person who's worked for a university, but, uh, you know, it was essential to do. And but I still, 20 hours is a lot. It's a lot. And, you know, I racked up a lot of, you know, debt still in that process, which tells you a lot. Uni's a lot more expensive than people make it out to be. And halls are atrocious. The cost of halls is not... I don't think it's any different to what you'd pay for a room in London. No. It's an absolute joke. I mean, I was in the cheapest one and it still sent me overdrawn every month, technically. So that's, that's ridiculous in itself. And, you know, my summers... While everyone else was doing their cool things, blah blah blah, we're, we're spending a pee factory, you know, like it's all it's all fun a and pee gigs. factory. Yeah, what well, does that involve? Shelling peas, uh, tinning them, what? Literally picking the shit out of peas. That was my <laughs> job. Uh, I had to pick pick out the feces and weigh them. Oh my god! Now <laughs> yeah. I'm really grateful for my bog standard waitressing job. That I had. <laughs> Gee whiz. It's made you probably a stronger person, perhaps, but... Yeah, it um, made my stand-up set slightly better, but yeah. still not good enough. Yeah. Okay, so from picking the shit out of peace to journalism, yeah. better job, but obviously <laughs> um, very middle-class So middle-class. So yeah. how, did you, how did you navigate that? Or how are you navigating that? Yeah, I suppose it still is a, a current thing. And yet again, it's always that weird mediation between how I want to actually express things and what's fair as well so I still feel like I'm striking that balance and I think what's actually really struck me um in journalism and then I promise I will move on to how I got there um is the fact that so many people now want to pretend that they're working class so many people want to pretend that they've come from nothing or they've had a really tough start and they're the people who tend to want to shout the loudest and get the most plaudits for it And I think actually, as a general rule, most working class people 
actually don't feel that confident about their position, their social standing, their professional standing. So they're not going to shout about it necessarily, yeah? No, I don't think they have that cohesive branding necessarily. <laughs> like, I certainly do. And, you know... I'm, I'm nodding away here because I'm just yeah. thinking of all the times that someone said, well, my great-grandfather worked down the pit. It's like, yeah. well, yeah, that doesn't really reflect yeah. on what you are now. So yeah, I feel like nice people... Nice bibs, you know? Yeah, like, exactly. So I just feel like people do often define their privilege and their lack of privilege on their own terms so as long as they get to present how they want to present it Mm. then it's fine if they're so-called working class but yeah also I feel like it's because people get defensive about the privilege like if they went to a boarding Mm. school ever they don't want that to define their success so they have to list the thing the disadvantages that they might have had or their grandfathers had or whatever yeah but I feel like if you really care about your privilege go and do something I love, you know, we all get involved in this Twitter minefield. I mean, what was it yesterday? It broke out an argument of, well, if you work in class, you can work for certain publications, you can work for certain tabloids, and that's okay. And then obviously other people are saying, no, that's not okay. Like, no one has a God-given right to be in journalism. You know, there are other jobs. And I find it really funny that the people who start these conversations are always very middle class. Uh, While the rest of us are there and usually not in a position where they can actually contribute, either because of their job, because they're in a financially precarious position and they don't want to, you know, exclude certain work. And, you know, they don't want to look like they're rocking the boat. I think there's a real kind of need to not want to stand out too much and to want to conform. But I think the most grating example I had with someone saying that, you know, well, I'm underprivileged too, was someone who has a one-bedroomed house owned by their dad in West London, but went to a private school. But because their grandparents were working class and lived on a council estate, that means that they can say they're working class. And this person was just trying to sympathise with me. And I thought, you know, you're a really well-known journalist like with a lot of clout behind you do you really need to shit on me and other people in order to further yourself at this stage or can you just admit and say yeah do you know what I am from something but this is how I help other people you know that means so much more to me than a tiny little tweet of you know self-centeredness yeah so how did you get into journalism so I had an idea that I wanted to be a journalist when I was about 15. Um, it's been the one thing I've been very sure about, I think. Because it's like, I'm right, I love writing. How can I make a career out of that? Journalism. Um, so I started ranting to my local newspaper when I was about 17. Uh, Ken Clark had just put through a really dubious rape reform. And I was like, hey, I'm really annoyed about that. Uh, so they gave me a column, which is still amazing, hilarious now. 17. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's a bit obnoxious, That's isn't cool. it? Um, and then from there, I got involved in my student newspaper. And then I ended up being editor in chief after a really garish uh, campaign around campus with lots of amazing. pictures of my face dotted around. Uh, but yeah, after that, it was a case of going to the Journalism Diversity Fund. I got a scholarship from them, uh, not to go to City or Goldsmiths, but to go and do my NCTJs with News Associates. Uh, so that's a shorter course and it's a lot more accessible, I think, for people like me. I did a short course, 12 yeah. weeks. Yeah. yeah, it does the job, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, yeah, it does do the job. Um, and that was funded, which was a real blessing. 
Um, but I did get into further debt when I started freelancing because, you know, as, as any freelancer knows, waiting on that amount of pay is not something the average person can do and it comes at a real price. And when you're spending a lot of money before you've already even got it and in hopes that that money will equate to what you've worked out in your head, you know, it's a really anxious, time-consuming game. Did you go straight into freelancing then after your qualification? Yeah. That's tough. Yeah, really tough. And uh, I think someone who is a little bit less naive than me would have thought about it a bit better. But I'm quite impulsive. We all have to learn these lessons, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what has the impact been of, you You said in the piece that you got up to 4K of debt yeah. during uni and then continued, as you've just said just now, in, mm. in your working life. So how did you, yeah, what has the impact of that been and what kind of lessons? I don't want to phrase this question like the responsibilities on you. That's no, not what I'm trying sure. to say. No, I get you. Um, things are going to take a lot longer for me to get there. Um, you know, it took me a lot longer to train as a journalist. I had a couple of years out, by the way, uh, working in a pub, going to a job where I was paid half of what I thought, moving back to Leeds, uh, going about things that way. So there were a lot of false starts. Uh, for me, I am starting out my savings completely on my own. And uh, I'm actually really happy because two months ago, I created my first savings account. Yay. So well done. <laughs> that is actually a positive. And yeah, the same as me, actually. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Everyone kind of goes, oh, yeah, it kind of happened later than I thought. Um, you know, things like me buying a house are a little less possible. Um, but if I do decide to do that, say, say if I stay in London, that's going to take me a lot longer than the average person. I think it's about the time it's going to take. And, you know, it does uh, affect my spending now because I have to, you know, portion a certain amount a month to pay that off. And, you know, I'm not, I don't owe anything to any debtors. This is like overdraft situations. But what people don't know about that much is how that interest compounds after you hit certain thresholds on your overdraft oh my God, my bank did not make that clear to me. And then I was like, why are you taking £80 out of my account? Like, what are you doing? And then you eventually get an explanation. Mm -hmm. But what's really strange is my parents said a lot of this to me when I was young. They're really frugal. They're really good with money. And I think they're quite confused about what happened to me. But, you know, it's, it's a willingness to listen and a willingness to really understand it and accept the magnitude of what's going on, I think. And, you know, likewise, I don't think they fully understood how costly the university experience would be for me, how highly competitive this industry is, especially if you're going to decide to stick it out and wait for the right opportunity. And, you know, reality hits. But really, it's about time. Uh, so now I just have to be patient. And when you go home now and perhaps see people you went to school with, etc., is there any part of you that feels like an outsider because you've kind of stepped into that middle-class journalism world yeah oh yeah that is the pervasive feeling for me I'm in this really liminal world now and uh yeah you never quite fit in the same in either community you know like it's a weird one I feel like in London like I'm seen as quite loud quite brash and then like back home it's you know I'm, I'm posh my my accent's cleaved off a bit which I'm really frustrated about it's now this broad and me broad mess rather mm. than like a specifically whole accent and I'm wondering when that happens you know it's finding a way to be comfortable with who you are 
but I definitely want more of a working class community around me too. You know, there are people here, there are people in this industry and, you know, I'm lucky to be good friends with a fair few of them, but it's how we can organise and make it better for people like us. Yeah. Because like you said, there's not enough of these stories out there. Yeah. And talking of community, are you a found, co-founder of Second Source, which is a mentoring I am program? Yeah. So tell me a little bit about that and how important it is, you th- in your opinion, if, would it be for other working class people to have a mentor? Yeah, I think it's incredibly important. Um, weirdly enough, I was a mentor on the scheme last year and this year I'm going to be a mentee. Um, namely because I felt like I'm only a couple of years in. I still have those crises of confidence that really will take me to fix, but it would be really good to have an established voice I can look up to that, you know, shares those values and experiences. And, uh, you know, hopefully that means that I'm enough of a solid advertisement and I believe in it that much that I will be using its services. But, you know, I mean... This is probably for another time, but, you know, we all started Second Source, quite a few of us, including myself, on the back of experiences of quite traumatic harassment. And I think it is really important to have those safe spaces and communities with people that aren't just necessarily sexually harassing you, but they're doubting your intellect, they're doubting the quality of your work, and, you know, they they fill your heads with those voices. And I think it's uh, tackling that lovely word we all know so well, uh, imposter syndrome, or should yeah. I say words. Mm. And, uh, you know, going from there, really, because, it, you know, if you're not going to necessarily get it from the outside world, then you can build it up inside yourself and hopefully start something. Because we saw, I mean, besides mentoring, which obviously I agree is important, the whole system about unpaid internships and mm. freelancing and having to wait to be paid and there's so many issues that would prevent people from entering this industry massively and you know i i waited four months for my first freelance paycheck four months that's just disgusting you know could you imagine withholding a person's full-time wage for four months you know work should be valued in the same way and you know this industry shouldn't rely on you know, gratitude, you know, people deserve to be paid for their work. It is a skill. And even if everyone thinks they can be a journalist, you can't, it takes a lot of time and a lot of practice. And, you know, we're all still learning. It is a trade. And, uh, you know, because there's uh, people, you know, it's dominated by upper middle class and upper class people. It has been, you know, repurposed as this luxury industry and, you know, that, that's dangerous for everyone. It's dangerous for the communities we serve and it's the da- dangerous for the people in it. Yeah, because I'm not an expert on the history of journalism, but mm. I do seem to remember more stories from people before me, of like working class lad, went mm. on the local paper, worked his way up, mm. and that doesn't seem to be the case. It seems to be Oxford entering some mainstream paper. Yeah, definitely. Um, but, yeah, I, I guess the last question is... Um, you mentioned the piece that you still worry about money to this day, although you are taking those positive steps Mm. to be more open about debt, etc. Yeah. So in what way does it impact you now? And do you think that your anxiety will lessen over time? Or do you think that's something that will always, you'll always feel? It's a weird one because the anxiety, I think, will sadly stay just because it's chronic. Um, It's one of those things. Um, But how it relates to finances, maybe it will get better. 
But I think it's reframing your perspective a bit as well. When you've always told yourself repeatedly that you don't have enough money, shifting that and then being like, you know, if uh, the world doesn't boil over, will I have kids? Will I feel like I don't have enough money then? Will I feel like I don't have enough to offer them? You know, do I have the cultural capital that other people can offer their kids to get by in, you know, professions like mine? You know, I think it's always a case of, what value can I bring? But that's capitalism, isn't it? <laughs> um, but in terms of how I think about money now, um, especially this month, it's uh, fortunately been better than ever, which is a really nice uh, weight off my mind. Um, Anything particular? What's happened this month? Yeah, I mean, I had a really horrendous HMRC bill that oh, right. we yeah. realised was a mistake on their side. Oh, good. <laughs> so I got a lovely little rebate and now oh, I can... Cool. Uh, sort my life out a bit um but yeah I mean it's just trying to fight those obsessive tendencies where you're chronically calculating things chronically spreadsheeting stuff you know I you know uh, don't want to wake up in the middle of the night thinking about it you know I would like to think that is possible but and I think it will come but right now it seems like a nice idea but it's not fully fledged in my mind yeah but as you said, you've started to talk to like other people about your situation, which is a good, a good yeah. step. Yeah, my boyfriend is like the most supportive person in the world on this. Very mm. lucky to have him. Yeah, and uh, you know he he has been you know very accommodating whenever I've wanted to kind of shoot the shit with him about it. And you know, like I, I'm sure I could trust any of my good friends to talk about it. And mm. it's just yeah. A matter of uh, getting over my own insecurities, I think. Mm, yeah. It's it's really weird, I was going to say. Mm. It's really weird how, you know, speaking one-on-one -on -one to a person can be really difficult, but actually writing something like a piece about yes. it. no, I relate to that. Yeah, it just feels like you're throwing it out into the ether. There's like, no way you'd get a tannoy in the street and shout about it, but yeah. write it down, there's that distance. This is it, and you know, like, uh, I think definitely with me, people confuse my loudness with confidence, and you know, it's definitely not the case. <laughs> well, I'm really glad you shared that piece anyway, and it's been really interesting chatting to you, so thank yeah. you. Thank you. Next, I'm speaking to Marianne Stevenson, who is director of the UK's Women's Budget Group, a charity that focuses on how economic policies affect women from austerity to Brexit. And for full transparency, this is a charity I'm now a part of. I asked Marianne one of my own questions this week about the gender pay gap. How do you politely but firmly counter the proposal that the gender pay gap is a myth? Because, for example, women earn more in their 20s and apologies for the quality of this recording. The argument that the pay gap is a myth is based on a failure to understand what we're talking about when we're talking about the pay gap. So it's things like, well, women tend to do different jobs that are just less well paid. And the, the point there is that the jobs that women have historically done have been less well paid than the jobs that men have historically done because women have done them. Mm -hmm. um, if you look at sectors that become feminised, um, that have traditionally been seen as, as male sectors, the rates of pay fall. So, for example, being a secretary in the 19th century was a male job. Mm -hmm. um, and then it became a traditionally female job and rates of pay fell. You look at um, 
pay in um, former Eastern Bloc countries for doctors, which was seen as a majority female profession, rates of pay were lower. Um, so the, the fact that women are doing less well-paid job, you know, it's that the jobs are less well-paid because women do them rather than women are doing less well-paid jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And the second issue is around, you know, women choosing to work part-time. Well, there's no reason why a part-time worker shouldn't earn the same per hour as a full-time worker. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, their weekly and annual earnings will be lower because they're working fewer hours. Um, and that's one of the, the main causes of, of in-work poverty for women. Um, but what happens is that women end up moving into lower paid sectors in order to be able to work part-time. So you've got this huge loss of productivity mm. where women are working below their education and skill and experience level in order to be able to work part-time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and if they were able to carry on doing the job that they were previously doing full-time, part-time, they would carry on doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sounds familiar. And they would be earning more. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we've all seen it. Yeah. Um, you see it particularly once women have children. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, you know, I really, really noticed it once I had children, the number of women that I met um, in uh, baby groups and so on who were retraining or moving into different sectors or, you know, women who were university lecturers who were going to work as, as um, administrators in the university because they'd be allowed to work part-time as an administrator but not as a university lecturer. Mm-hmm. Um, and seemingly no one questioned why this was happening or thought, you know, why why are these women leaving these jobs and um, going into less well-paid jobs? Thank you for listening to this week's episode. Please rate, review and subscribe to this podcast on all your usual platforms. You can tweet us at honest underscore account underscore. We're also on Instagram at an underscore honest underscore account. Or you can email us at contact at an honest account dot co dot uk. Thank you to Moneybox and see you next week.